Okay, well, hello and welcome to the London School of Economics. We're delighted to have you. It's a very hot day outside, as you've, as you've noticed. Uh, most people are at the pub, uh, but you have come here to listen to a very important uh, discussion on the future of the European Union, particularly Brexit and what an Emmanuel Macron victory in the French presidential elections means for it. So we have two fantastic speakers with us today who are going to fuse two really interesting topics, possibly the two most important topics in European politics today. The victory of Macron, and of course this is London School of Economics, and so we will be dealing with Brexit, so the implications of his presidential election victory on Brexit, what will the negotiations look like after a Macron victory, how does it change the UK negotiating position, and what does this all mean for the future of Europe. So, on my right hand we have Alexandre Holroyd, who is the En Marche candidate representing the French in Northern Europe. He's got his work cut out, he's got 22 days until the elections, he's working very very, very hard, flat out. Nine days. Is it nine, nine days? Nine days left, 22 days for the whole campaign. Oh my goodness, I'm, I'm very sorry. Well, that's not nine days. You started 20, 22 days. It's a very, very short campaign indeed. We're used to far longer campaigns. In the US, of course, uh, a year and a half is, is, uh, is normal. Uh, Alexandra has uh, extensive experience in uh, consultancy and public affairs. Uh, you will forgive me for mentioning that you studied at King's College for your BA. I actually studied here as well. Well, hang on I a minute. I was, I, was going, I, was going to say, I was going to say that you compensated for that <laughs> by then studying at the London School of Economics. And so we will congratulate you on that. And, and Sciences Po thrown in for good measure as well. Not, not a bad, not a bad uh, alma mater at all. And on my left hand, uh, we have uh, Professor Ian Beck, who is Professorial Research Fellow here at the European Institute. He deals with uh, EU economic affairs, EU economic governance. Uh, that, those are his main uh, areas of research interest. He has held a number of advisory roles. Uh, he really is one of the top authorities here at the European Institute on Brexit, and so we are delighted to have him with us. So I will tell you a little bit about the format today. Uh, in a moment, I will hand over to Alexander, who will speak for about 12 to 15 minutes on what he feels the implications are uh, of the Macron victory for Brexit. And then I will do the same for you. There'll be a question and answer session, uh, which will come after two or three questions, which I'll ask the, the speakers. We'll have a short discussion here, and then you will have 45 minutes to ask questions as you wish. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Alexandre, and we'll get started. Thank you. Um, first, so we'll do this in English, right? In English, please. Uh, first, thanks you, thank you very much for coming. Um, I am, I'm trying to think if I would have come as a student here, and I might have been at the pub, to be honest. So I'm I'm full of admiration, uh, particularly considering the temperature in the room, which I think we, we, might, we might have to open the window at some point very soon. Um, firstly, I'd like to say that it's a tremendous honour to be back here, um, this time on this side of the table. Um, it's actually quite an odd experience. Uh, it's been a tremendous honour to be selected by Omash to run in this constituency. Um, Aside from studying here, I grew up here. Uh, I was uh, a student at the French school here. Uh, I then studied European politics throughout my studies, worked in Brussels for five years in the consultancy industry, and then came back here. So I've sort of seen both sides of, uh, of the equation, uh, the English government side and the conservative government and the more sort of outer conservative government uh, and the European side. Um, the... We decided in France to run a campaign which was a bit countercurrent, which was an openly and resoundly pro-European campaign. Um, it was a decision which, at the beginning, sort of puzzled most political uh, sort of political commentators. And if you went the first meeting where I went to see Emmanuel Macron, um, big meeting in Paris, 
uh, which was on the 10th of December, uh, about a third of the speech was dedicated to the European project, which in France you would not have found probably since the mid-2000s best of all, the early or late 90s, uh, more probably. Um, the reason we did that is not because we thought it was an electoral winning uh, campaign it's, or subject, it's because we truly believe that sort of the future of our country and our economy uh, lies in Europe. And it's uh, a, a sort of Europhile position which is both uh, an emotional one, um, linked to the sort of memory of the war and the sort of role that Europe has had in building peace, but also a pragmatic one in that we want to pick up the mantle, which actually, and we can talk about this later, um, a lot of the sort of files that the UK has traditionally defended at European level are now voiced by the French, who have traditionally been on the other side of it, be it the single market or the digital single market. We want to pick up that mantle because we think that the um, economics, the future of our economic um, prosperity lies in Europe. And the third one being a realist perspective, which is that we think that Trump has accelerated the perception that the US is withdrawing slowly its source, its attention from Europe. But actually, if you look back to the early Obama years, that sort of direction that the US has taken has been clear for some time, whether for some time whether the present is more or less popular in Europe. And that con combined with a sort of trickier relation with Russia, um, we need to sort of federate both um, defence efforts at European level and on a security basis uh, some of the um, intelligence work at European level. So these are the sort of three big elements that we see uh, going forward. And the perception that we have is that there's been a few problems with the way um, we've dealt with Europe recently. We've, in the 90s, we accepted that we were going to delegate quite a lot of power to Europe, and some of the competencies entirely, so if you think of competition, if you think of trade. And the outcome of that was that national politicians kept criticizing, criticizing any arbitrage made by the Commission, which we think is a mistake. We think that on any arbitrage that you make at European level, there will be winners and losers, there will be regions who win and lose, and the responsibility that we have is to defend those arbitrages, even if we're sometimes on the losing end of them. If we don't, and we constantly squabble, we undermine constantly the decision-making process of the EU. And that has an impact for Brexit, because if you look at Article 50, the sort of, the sort of driving factor, the driving negotiating position is going to be done by the Commission, obviously. Um, and I think that you're going to hear very little criticism openly in the coming six to eight months coming out of Paris of what the Commission is doing. Um, I think there's going to be an enormous effort and uh, effort to sort of uh, assure a complete alignment of all the European positions behind um, the European Commission and Commissioner Barney. Um, this is, I think, this is going to be a fundamental element of what Brexit is going to look like from a French perspective. There's a, an enormous amount of press in um, the UK about how Emmanuel Macron wants to make sure the city completely fails and that all the bankers move back to pack up their bags and move back to Paris and that all the startups do the same. Um, and I wouldn't say that that's not true, um, but I'd say that the assumption made in the British press that it's based on making the UK less competitive is wrong. I think the, 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 the desire that we have is to make France more competitive. We don't believe that my, by making the UK more competitive, these banks and these startups will move to Paris. We think that if that's the only change in the equation, they might move to Ireland, to the US, to Luxembourg. But the real challenge is going to be to make Paris or the rest of France attractive for all these different parts of the industry. And it hasn't been, or it's been less so, for all sorts of different reasons, which are sort of local reasons, whether it's 
the type of law that we have, the complexity of the administration, the um, the tax regime and the tax system, the sort of tax cuts that you get as a startup here, the tax, I mean, the whole host of reasons that we need to reform in France to make the French market more attractive, which is going to be the, the linchpin of policy making in the next few years in France. Um, as for the negotiation, I think very few people in France, in the administration, in the Commission, uh, very few people who know what the European Union is in detail think that the UK will leave as it's conceived in the UK press within two years. Um, there are 26 different regulatory, 26, and you might correct me, different uh, regulatory bodies uh, who have been set up and who sort of sift through secondary legislation on chemical legislation, on air policy, on all sorts of different issues. Um, and the UK will be subject to a lot of these regulatory agencies for the foreseeable future for at least eight to ten years, in my view. I think it's very, very unlikely that we will cut short all these different policies. And that has a number of implications because these regulations and these directives which have been drafted over the years and adopted into UK legislation uh, are live bodies. They're not dead bodies which once transferred completely stop. They have a layer of secondary legislation which through technical working groups continues advancing at European level. And it's going to be very complicated to figure out how the UK um, is going to be able to leave, without leaving these agencies, to be part of those secondary legislation working groups, experts working groups, um, within the European institutions and the different regular bodies. It's also a big shame because the, um, the UK has tremendous expertise in certain sectors. So if you think of uh, the financial European regulator, it's, been in, it's received enormous amount of help from the FCA and enormous amount of expertise from the FCA. Uh, if you think of the drive to liberalise the energy market uh, in uh, the EU, it's been pushed a lot uh, by um, the English and it's been helped a lot by Ofgem. We tend to have in the UK, or the UK tends to have, very competent regulators. Um, so, so, so withdrawing these regulators from sort of their European sort of whatever you want to call them counterparts will have, will have I think, in my opinion, a, a negative impact on, on European policy making. But that means that I don't believe that we will have a full exit deal, as is conceived in the UK, within two years. I think what we will have and what we need to have is an exit deal which deals with the very highly political questions. And that's going to be, and Commissioner Barnier has been very clear about this, um, in the, uh, that's going to be the, that it's going to be the first issue to be dealt with. That's going to be the rights of Europeans living in the UK and vice versa, and the UK and UK citizens living in Europe. That's going to be about pension funds and the pensions of uh, English Euro uh, European civil servants. Um, that's going to be about the contribution to the budget, which is going to be linked to how many of these regulatory bodies we stay into and how much we have to contribute to all these different bodies. Um, those are the type of issues that we need to solve uh, by the end of the two years. I can easily see, and uh, I think the UK government is or the UK administration is going towards that perspective, that you can then have a, a pretty long transitionary period where you start choosing which regulatory bodies you want to leave, and that will depend on which partners the UK chooses to trade with, what types of standards does it want to adopt in all different parts of the industry, and so forth. Um, the Macron presidency, I don't think it will have an enormous impact on Brexit per se. I think it's going to have an enormous impact on Europe, so on the other side. There was a narrative in the UK up to a couple of months ago 
that it didn't really matter that we've left because anyway the EU is going to fall apart and nobody's going to be one part of it and right-wing hands are going to sweep across the continent. And if you look at Austria, if you look at the Netherlands, if you look at France, it seems that that narrative is just not happening. And there's, on the contrary, at the moment, a drive to push Europe forward. Now, that's going to be an enormous challenge, and we know it. It's going to be an enormous challenge because there's, there's been, over the last 20 years, growing anxiety about what direction the EU is taking. And I think there's been growing anxiety about is the European Union becoming what citizens uh, want from the EU? And one of the measures that we want to launch by the end of 2017 in the programme is to launch what we call democratic conventions in all the countries to try and grasp what European citizens expect from the EU and to try and grasp a coherence within the different countries because they might want different um, elements of the EU. It's a bit the way we developed the national programme in France. The programme was developed around sort of crowdsourcing in information from hundreds of local committee across the country um, and having experts who sort of work with that to transform it into sort of concrete policy proposals. That's how we sort of ranked the key priorities for the programme, which have been unemployment, education uh, and the European Union. We would like to see that done at European level so that at the end, with working with experts and academics, we can come up with an idea which can be converted into something which looks more like a treaty reform or at least like a perception of where we want the EU to go. And one of the key objectives with that is to, tell me if I'm going to run out of time. One of, the key, one, one, of key, one of the key objectives of that is going to be that we're going to defend an EU which can advance without unanimity. Um, so that if there are big ideas which group large proportions of the EU um, who want to go further, uh, we will stick by the idea that a multi-speed Europe um, will happen, knowing that the idea of a two-speed Europe in all, I mean, it practically already exists with the Eurozone, so it's, it's not something brand new, and it exists in, actually in tons of different regulations where some countries have exemptions and some countries don't, which, which suggests that you can have a functioning Europe with different levels of integration depending on the countries you're in. Wonderful. That was a, a riveting, riveting start to the, dis to the discussion from Alexandre. Um, so, in response to the question, what does the presidency mean for Brexit? Uh, not a lot, but more for the EU. I think it means yeah. for, more for the EU, yeah. I think that's where Wonderful. the real change is going to be. So, I'm curious, and I think we all are curious, to hear whether Ian Begg agrees with that assertion. And so, over to Ian Begg. Well, as many of you will know, the last time Emmanuel Macron left the Elysee, he disappointed the European Institute at LSE very greatly yeah. because we'd selected him as a visiting professor <laughs> and he didn't show up. <laughs> we hope this time round, when we invite him, he will come. I'm gonna, if you win the election, I'm going to pass on this, uh, <laughs> this request I will. to you. What happened was that uh, somebody called Vals, remember him? <laughs> said to Macron, why don't you come and be the economy minister in the, in the French government? So instead of coming here, where he would have had a far more pleasant time, he was taken to Bercy. <laughs> what I want to do is give you one comment, five observations and two predictions. There's no particular order to these things. The comment first, and that is just consider the alternative. Suppose Macron had not won. And the first supposition here is, well, it might have been Fillon. And the Brits would probably be more keen on Fillon being the, the French president from the perspective of negotiating Brexit than they would have been with any of the alternatives. 
And then consider the other. Suppose it had been Marie. I was told off by a French journalist for even using the term Marie. He said, no, no, you, you must not banaliser Madame Le Pen. It must always be Le Pen. I'm not supposed to give her credibility by referring to her as Marie. Anyway, suppose Marine had won. What would have happened then? Well, we'd have seen immediate chaos at European level because the, the European project as a whole would have been under severe challenge. The coherence of the EU negotiating position would have been very different. So in that respect, my comment is that the victory of Emmanuel Macron in many ways represents the status quo from the perspective of what we expect from France in negotiating Brexit. He will not differ all that much from the Hollande Valls government or whoever took over as, as a, a prime minister for the last few weeks of the campaign. Observations next. And my first observation is that Macron's number one preoccupation will be, and this may come as a great surprise to you, France. I think you've already hinted at it from what Alexander has been saying, but in what respects will, will, will this be important for France? Yes, his rhetoric in the campaign was very much around uh, a new approach to Europe. But what's he going to face once he's in, fully in power? And if Alexandre succeeds, maybe there will even be a, an hommage majorité in the Assemblée Nationale. Who knows? Or he might have to go for some variation on a grand coalition. We wait to see what comes out there. But I, any way that he comes to power, he's going to face all those tough challenges in France that we all know about. Dealing with the labour code, the code de travail. Dealing with the fact that the French state is amongst the biggest in Europe and is squeezing the economy in ways which are broadly recognised as being counterproductive. All of that is the immediate and urgent French priority. And if he doesn't deliver in all of this, guess who's going to be the beneficiary? I'm not allowed to banalise her name, Marine. Because 2022 is not that far away. A failure by Macron to deliver is going to make it very difficult for the next round of French elections. Now, I think having said that, my second observation is that he's made pretty clear what his view is on Britain and Brexit and, and the negotiation of Brexit. The expression used in one interview was, there will be consequences. And this has been pretty consistent. There will be consequences for the UK. The UK is not going to be able to cherry-pick in a way which enables us to walk away with a better deal than being a member of the European Union. It's not exclusively a Macron view. It's one which is widely shared across the continent. But I think we should regard that as, the, as his core view. And in, in saying that, I think he's, he's reflecting a combination of his domestic priorities and what he wants to see the European Union evolve towards. So that's, that's my second observation. The third is that, in spite of the efforts of the, the German press to come up with a composite to replace Mercosy, I think they failed. They, they come up with Mercon, which doesn't sound that great. So I think a far better one is M&M. <laughs> <laughs> and M&M is going to be critical to what happens in defining the overall European position, forging some sort of new Franco-German alliance. And I think Theresa has missed her chance for it to be M and M and M. <laughs> she could have had it, but she, she blew it because she, she hasn't 
approach Brexit in a way that makes enough sense for this. M and M, let's face it, are always going to prefer the EU interest over the UK interest. They're not going to make concessions which in any way compromise their vision of where they want the EU to move. And that is going to mean that it's going to be difficult in some respects. He also shares with, with Merkel, broadly speaking, a pro-market orientation, which is different from what François Hollande had, certainly different from what Mélenchon might have brought to the party, and different still from what uh, Le Pen would have brought to the party. So there is a mainstream market-oriented approach there, which M&M represents. Fourth observation, there is nevertheless a huge battle looming and about to break out very soon over the future of the Eurozone. We've, we've been around this for quite some time. We had the, the four presidents report in 2012, the five presidents report in 2015, very limited follow-up on that so far from what's, what's been done at European level in, in trying to reform European economic governance. And the core of this dispute, if you accept my view on it, can be summed up in a very simple pair of expressions. What the Germans want, maybe the Dutch want, certainly the outgoing uh, head of the Eurogroup, Dijsselbloem wanted, was risk controlling, is the first element in the story. What the French, supported by the Italians and the Spaniards, Spanish want, even the Greeks, I think, I was going to say. is risk sharing. And risk sharing and risk controlling poses a huge challenge to this future evolution of the Eurozone. I suspect Macron, from already what he's been saying, is going to be on the side of risk sharing. But he's going to have to push very hard to get that past Wolfgang Schäuble, Merkel, and whoever ends up in prominent positions following the German elections. It also touches on institutional developments, such as the possibility of a Monsieur ou Madame Euro, a future European Euro Area Finance Minister of some description, the creation of a Euro Area Treasury, and the consequence of this would be things like common deposit insurance and common Euro bonds. So that is a, a big challenge on how Macron approaches his European connections, which will touch on the Brexit negotiations. Fifth observation is that, in some respects, there is a bold template. Jean Pisani Ferry, who has been a, an eminence gris behind, eminence gris behind what Macron's programme is, and certainly on the economics, is the co-author of a, a Bruegel report, which suggests that there should be a new partnership created at European level. And that partnership might be conceived of as inner and outer circles. Britain in the outer circle, France and Germany in the inner circle, and where we leave the Greeks, maybe on the, the inner in, in the seventh circle of hell, or, or somewhere else. And, Certainly the inner circle. And this ties in with the publication recently of the Commission White Paper on the Future of Europe. Now, I don't know how many of you have read it, but there are five scenarios on that, and I'm going to say something briefly about those five. Scenario one is status quo, probably not tenable. Scenario five can probably be summed up as federalism, Euro-federalism, also not tenable. That leaves three. One is that uh, we should revert to little more than the single market in Europe. And I think that might well have suited the Brits very well. It's probably not one that's going to find much favour in other European capitals. That leaves two. 
One of those is those that can go ahead, do more. And the other is do less but better. Now, the single market one, the do less but better, and those that can go ahead, would all have suited the Brits about a year ago. So there's a, an interesting speculation on whether, had these scenarios been on the table a year ago, the Brexit outcome would have been different. However, we are where we are. And amongst those scenarios, France and Germany, in the leadership role in Europe, are going to have to choose which one they favour. And I suspect it's going to be that those who want to go ahead and those that don't, don't follow, which is, in the jargon of critical science, differentiated integration. It's variable geometry, not multi-speed Europe. Multi-speed implies you get to the same destination at a different pace. Variable geometry means you end up with different configurations and constellations across Europe. Now, although those scenarios might well have suited the UK, I think the onus will be on the UK to try to define how it responds to this notion of a new kind of European deal. It brings in Turkey, potentially. It brings in we can go, go even further, Ukraine and some of the other countries in the Balkans who might want to be part of a future European arrangement. That brings me to my two predictions. The first of those predictions is, I think has already been articulated by Alexandre and it's a general sense. Quite simply, Macron is not going to do the Brits any favours. He isn't going to give them the sorts of things they would like to think of, but it's not going to be punishment for its own sake. It will be partly because his attempts to lure business across the English Channel, or La Manche, if you want to pronounce it, is about taking business and talent back to, back to Paris as part of his reform project. And he, more than most, is equipped to know what makes the financial services industry tick. So he, he is better able to design this kind of program. So that's my first prediction. The second is that there are going to be significant divisions, some of them very, very intractable, very hard to deal with, among the EU27. They're going to arise and will have to be dealt with. Just think of the range of dossiers, everything from the future of security arrangements in Europe to the future of the Eurozone banking union, even things that we don't normally have on the table, like uh, the, the European emissions trading scheme. All of this is going to have to be rethought. And Part of this prediction is that when Macron comes to the table, his primary interest will be French interests. If the Poles come up with something and the Germans come up with something, his preoccupation will be, yes, how do we get a deal, but I want to defend France. And defending France is going to lead to some outcomes. For this reason, division among the EU27, which nobody's going to be able to paper over very easily, my rather downbeat final point in this prediction is that, my, is that uh, there's a significant risk of a car crash Brexit. Over to you. Well, on that um, rather worrying note, I think we can start the, the next section of this discussion, which is the question and answer. Uh, you'll excuse me if I ask the first couple of questions. Uh, we, on both sides, have, have mentioned the, uh, the point of the National Assembly and the fact that... Um, it is not yet clear whether you will have a majority. Uh, what will that entail if you do not ultimately uh, generate the majority that you need in, in Parliament? Um, will Macron be able to implement many of the reforms that he has promised? I think there are three scenarios. The first one is we get an absolute majority, and in that case, yes. The second one is we don't get an absolute majority, but we get 
an assembly where we can work with either sides and we can either have a sort of grand coalition or either have a coalition which allied with the left gets some of the sort of left-leaning reforms through and allied with the centre-right gets some of the centre-right-leaning reforms through and we will get less, a smaller part of the programme. And another one where we get a, an assembly which is looking unlikely in the polls. The polls for the moment are all in the favour of a majority for us. But the third one where that is impossible, and in that case it will be a disaster for the country and a disaster for Europe. Um, and very little will be done for five years. So he's in the prediction game as well now. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I think it's, it's, an, it's, it's, it's an absolutely essential element. I mean, the, the, the parliamentary election is, is pretty much just as important as the presidential one. Um, president is very powerful if he has a parliament on his side. If he doesn't, he, has, he still has some prerogatives, but they're very limited. Mm -hmm. Would you like to elaborate on that? What, a disastrous scenario if you, uh, if you don't have a uh, majority. What will that look like? Well, if we relate it to the economic reform programme, which I think is the primary focus of, of what Macron wants to do to transform France, We've been through this with successive presidents. Sarko came into power saying he was going to reform things overnight. Nothing happened. As soon as the tractors appeared in the Champs-Élysées, he, he backed down. Hollande, in all respects, was a disappointment because he, he vacillated and ultimately sided with uh, the more like, conservative forces of maintaining France as it was. This has been the promise that Macron has come to put in front of the French people, that I'm, I'm the one who will this time make change happen. If he doesn't, then you have to fear that the outcome will be Le Pen. Would you agree with, uh, with that assertion? Do you think that if, if Macron, let's say, does not uh, go ahead and uh, complete the reforms that he has promised, which are of course necessary in France, will it be Le Pen or will it be something, I, something less exciting, less pro-European? I, mean, I, I completely agree with the analysis that you said earlier, which is that Macron is for more risk-sharing. So we propose a sort of European finance minister, we propose uh, a, European, a Eurozone parliament, which will be composed of the parliamentarians the existing parliament, but of the Eurozone countries. Um, we, uh, the reason I, I'm going to come back to the question of the, we propose the European budget, but there is a, there's a p very particular thing about Macron. He's the first person who agrees with those points, but is completely conscious that the only way to get the Germans and the, sort of the other side on board is to prove that we can reform the country. And that's very, very clear. So if we can't reform the country, nothing in the program will be doable including the launch of the EU, including the whole foreign policy argument. So, yes, I agree. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to make a prediction that Le Pen will be in power. I think Le Pen still has a long way to go before she wins the second round. But she will gain significant ground if we have five years of, you know, unemployment climbing, poor areas, rural areas, um, uh, uh, worse, the situation in those areas worsening. And it won't be only about Marine Le Pen winning, it will be about the fact that the first round of the election that we've had this time is slightly different from the previous ones, that the four mainstream parties are getting closer and closer in the first round. And already this time, with the, the sort of rise of Mélenchon at the end, there were a couple of people who were saying it was unlikely, but you could find yourself with a second round with, very, with two incredibly unappealing, unappealing, unappealing choices for the vast majority of the electorate, and then it's just flip a coin as to what's going to happen. You know, are people going to show up to choose between a hard left mm. candidate who wants to join the Bolivarian alliance and, and sort of, you know, 
uh, have cigars with Castro in, but, or, or a, a fascist candidate, or not a fascist, I don't like to use a fascist, but a far-right candidate who would spell also economic disaster, social disaster, and, and social strife in France. And if we were ever to arrive in the second round with that kind of scenario, then it's, it's, it's really up for grabs what happens to that 40, 50, 55, 60% uh, of the electorate, which is relatively mainstream, and it will be split down the line. And I think that the left side, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, has made a dramatic error by not backing Macron in the second round. Because if that ever happens in the future, even in a local election, all the right-wing voters are now going to say, well, if he doesn't back you know, the, the sort of mainstream candidate against Le Pen, why should we back him and his candidates against Le Pen? And that's a disaster for everyone. Um, so, so I think I think there is a risk of it. I, I'm not going to make a clear prediction. But I think there's a, a another dimension to it, which is the the near fifty percent of the first round electors who voted for candidates who were anti-European. And if there is an inability to transform France during the Macron presidency, that's likely to gain because it will be the same kind of constituency as back Trump in the US. And you could find a majority for an anti-European stance, which is potentially hugely damaging to the EU overall. It's true, although there's 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 there's, there's um, the Mélenchon rise is complicated because Amon is a very pro-European candidate, and if you look at the statistics of the Mélenchon rise, it's basically the Amon vote who finds itself in Mélenchon a more credible candidate for the first round. So there's a whole part of the Mélenchon vote in the first round. Where it's it's sort of it's its position on Europe is much more complicated. It was part of a very pro-Europhile party, so I think that in in the Mein Le Pen camp, it's pretty clear that if you're in the Mein Le Pen camp, you're bound to be anti-European. I mean, if you're not, you've got a real problem. Uh, if you're if you're in the Minoshal part, I think it's less clear. You'll have a, a, a significant part of the Minoshal part who wants a much more protectionist Europe, different Europe, but who's still quite attached to Europe. So. Bring the discussion back to this uh, upcoming five years. Um, we've discussed the, the Franco-German relationship. We've discussed M&M. &M. Um, of course, they've been uh, getting on quite well recently, uh, yeah. which is a, it's a brilliant, brilliant name. I'm going to use M &M. that one. So M &M. It's, a very, <laughs> it's a very good start to this, uh, to this relationship, to, to M&M, &M, certainly. Um, we have elections in Germany coming up in September. Would Macron prefer Schultz? It probably doesn't matter because Schultz isn't going to win. <laughs> but would he prefer him, given his reform program and the risk share? Is Schultz more likely to give him risk share? I think Schultz, it, it, it depends on the way in which Schultz can win. If Schultz can win in, in, a, in a way which enables him to govern on a, what the, the Germans call a Rothrodkön, the two red parties plus the Greens. He will have far more ability to change things. If he's in a grand coalition, which is probably the most he can aspire to, then he's going to be constrained by the CDU. And I don't think that that will really mean much change in the German stance. I mean, I, I agree. I, I think that the, the reality is that Schulz and Merkel, from a French perspective, a French policy perspective, are not that far apart. And they're both sort of pro Europe. They share the vast majority, both of what Merkel wants to do at European level. Um, so I, I don't think that there's a, this is not a choice like Mein Le Pen versus Macron where there is a fundamental gap between both of them or it's not a choice as we're having here between two 
Macron will work with both of them and work pretty well with both much of them. Much and, the, and he's in Germany very popular with both sides of the aisle. He's very close to Sigmund Gabriel, but he's quite close to um, to Ms. Merkel. His new diplomatic advisor, Philippe Etienne, was the is a sort of German specialist who was the ambassador in German to Germany before, and who was the former permanent uh, representative in Brussels when I was there. Uh, who's a fantastically talented uh, diplomat who's focused on Europe. So I think whatever happens in the German elections, this is not, it's a, not to, not to be um, pompous about it, but it's a less important right. election because the choice is more. The most important election, the most important election is the legislative election. <laughs> Clearly. Wonderful. Let us um, open questions up to the floor. Uh, we have 45 minutes. I'm sure there are lots of questions. We're going to take two at a time. And please uh, indicate who you are and uh, say who you're directing your question to. You were very quick to put your hand up. Right. Um, well, uh, Lucy Pillay, I work um, on Alexander's campaign, actually. Uh, I've got a question for you, uh, which is that when you were saying about how Gordon, Gordon Marine Le Pen is banalizing populism, but I rarely hear people who Donald Trump, Donald, or Nigel Farage, Nigel, and I'm wondering whether rather than populism, it's really sexism. Well, this was from a female French journalist. <laughs> she, she said to me, "You fought back that banalisé. Yeah. You must not banalise it." She she just thought that it would uh, encourage people to think of Marine as a, a homely politician if you call her by. And she was trying to remember herself to pitch herself mm -hmm. as Marine, not Le Pen. That was the, the, the essence of the argument. So I'm giving you second hand. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I was particularly impressed by that argument. I think it was more your argument. Like why, when you talk about Donald Trump, do you call him Donald? Or Nigel Farage, do you call him Nigel? I, I call him something far more obscene than that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also the Anglo-Saxon thing as well. I very often call people by their first names. It's a little bit less, less formal, I think. So it's sort of seen perhaps better to call Donald Trump Donald. Uh, any more questions? Yeah. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Christos. I'm from Greece. Uh, I'm not. I do not have deep knowledge of UK internal politics. And so my question is that, as I see it, for European Union, it is very easy to just postpone the dissolvement of the whole conflict of Brexit till the two years passes, and that makes them gain um, more, power, more power in the negotiation. What is the probability that that happens, and how should UK deal with it? And what is the probability of internal um, tension of dissolve inside the United Kingdom during that period. Can we have a, a second question as well? We're going to take two at a time. Uh, okay. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Good afternoon. My name is Sam. I'm doing a master in political economy here here at European Institute. I have one small observation and two questions, if you don't mind. The first observation is related to your uh, uh, conclusion regarding Macron and its impact on Brexit. Basically, from what I understood, that Macron wouldn't really change a lot in the Brexit negotiations, but he will still focus on this France first, and then EU second, and then maybe the negotiations later. 
uh, from my perspective, I, I feel that Macron winning the ele French election gives the EU more power to give uh, the UK a bad deal rather than a good deal. In this sense, uh, the French-German uh, coalition will be more powerful to push the UK to, let's say, for example, accept the divorce bill that they need to pay before starting the negotiations or whatever. Uh, so what do you think about this idea? My second uh, question is more about the elections here in the UK. So I don't have a lot of knowledge about it, but if the Labour Party wins the elections, would it be more difficult to get like a deal with French, for example, bilateral agreement, or if Theresa May wins the elections? So the difference between the two. Thanks. I think those were rather general in both directions. Last time? Yeah. Well, on Bassam's last points, I don't think in the unlikely event that the Labour Party wins the, the British general election, it would alter that much in the way in which the UK negotiates the, the Brexit deal because both Labour and the Conservatives, reflecting their own voting patterns, have broadly accepted Brexit, broadly accepted that there's going to have to be a bigger break than might have been envisaged a year ago. They're ambiguous in the Labour Party about their view on migration of uh, EU citizens. Strictly speaking, it's not migration, it's mobility of EU citizens. And that ambiguity would translate into the negotiations and make it quite difficult. But I don't see fundamental differences in how they would approach negotiations. On the EU Brexit deal, the divorce costs, the UK position is very straightforward. It wants it to be zero. And the signals coming out of different bits of Brussels suggest it can be anywhere between 60 and 100 billion euros. My best guess is somewhere around 30. On, on the first question of whether, I think you're asking, is the two years feasible? Is that correct? No. Simple answer. But what that leads on to is you will get maybe big components of the Article 50 divorce negotiations settled within two years. What you certainly will not get is, a, is, a, is the new partnership or new arrangement between the UK and the EU. And that in turn implies the need for some form of transition. But one area where there's a possibility of transition could well be on the, on the, on the EU budget. The EU budget is set in the seven-year framework, which ends in 2020. It might be sensible transition just to allow that to play out. UK continues receiving, it continues paying, and it avoids the problem of having to go to the Germans to say, can you make up for what the UK is no longer paying? On trade, almost certainly some form of transitional arrangement will be needed. But that does let raise the very difficult question of whether it's then subject to the European Court of Justice which Theresa May hates and says she wants to get rid of, or some form of transitional court, like the EFTA court, or you just hope that there's no negotiation, no legislation or jurisprudence required during that period and that will all go away. There's a mess coming up on that. Um, the Macron-Merkel deal, it's a relation to what you thought was before. Um, I don't think so, um, because before you had a 
Macron, there is a, there's one big advantage of Macron compared to sort of former politicians in France for the UK is Macron is a bigger believer in free markets, in you know um, the sort of internationalization of the economy than previous French presidents. So, so I don't believe that you're going to get a much harder bargain that you would have had with Hollande or Chirac or Sarkozy or I, I don't think it really changes the equilibrium. Um, but there will be a clear to, to back to your point, there will be a, there's a clear sense that. Listen, when you're in the EU, you get a ton of advantages and you have to pay some money to get them. And you are not going to get these advantages if you don't pay for them. And that's going to stick throughout the negotiation. Um, on the, on the two-year period, there's one rule of physics in Brussels, like gravity, is that there's always a deal. The deal's made at the very last... I mean, you know this better than I do. <laughs> but the deal is made at the last minute of the last hour of in the middle of the night, but there's always a deal. And civil servants uh, in Brussels, for all, their, for all that we criticise them for, are incredibly creative at making sure that there is a deal. Um, now, that, that deal doesn't answer all the question tends to happen quite a lot. So I agree that what we will have at the end is probably a political agreement which solves a lot of the, the headline political agreement sort of questions. But it won't solve how all the regulatory mechanism work. It won't solve all the question of uh, secondary legislation. We will be subject in a whole host of areas, in my view, to the ECJ. Um, so I, I, I agree with you. We'll be out-ish, but not in the sort of out that people envisage here, which is free from any constraints, or the outside or the Brexiters being here, which is free from any constraints and free to do whatever we want everywhere in the world with our industries, our foreign policy. But I think there'll be a deal at the last minute. Yes, um, gentleman with the white t-shirt. Thanks, I'm Sebastian Diesner from the European Institute. Um, there was a point of agreement among the speakers, so in fact more than one, but one that I wanted to uh, challenge or I think question, and that was, and I'm stylizing a bit, but it was if basically if we can't reform France, then we can't do anything at all in Europe. That was a bit the bottom line I felt, and I'm really wondering if that's not setting the hurdle very high for oneself. If it's not extremely risky to say only if we transform France to 100%, which no one has achieved before, can we do anything in terms of EU reform? I'm really wondering if this narrative is not very risky and actually a big gamble. Let's have another question. Um, there's something, someone at the back? No? All right. Thanks. Um, my name is Arnold Zaysen-Smith. I'm also doing my master's in political economy of Europe at the LSE. Um, I have two questions. Uh, the first, first one is, is about uh, Macron's pro-European stance. And to what extent, despite of this, do you think it's possible that in the future he might bring a fresh think thinking to EU policymaking and, and perhaps go beyond strictly the national interest of France? And I'm thinking about two specific policy examples that probably most member states would be in favor of, but France has resisted. One of them would be uh, the seat of the European Parliament in Strasbourg, and whether France is willing to accept changing that. And the other one is reforming the common agricultural policy uh, within the EU budget. Mm -hmm. And the second question would be specifically perhaps to Professor Beck about Theresa May and her leadership within the Brexit negotiations. 
Do you think that when it will get difficult, will Theresa May be strong and stable? Or will, as more recently, start, well, there have been some times when it actually gets difficult, she might be weak and What is your response to that? Thank you. That's a nice way to put it. That'll talk. Um, I think the Reform France, Reform Europe question, yes, it is very ambitious. But you know, Macron is pretty, pretty, sets his sights pretty high pretty quickly. Um, and I think the trajectory of the movement from non existent uh, a year ago to the presidency today for a brand new party will push him more in that direction. Uh, and we are convinced that we will succeed, and so am I, uh, if we get a majority. Um, we're also convinced that European partners will just not want to go forward if we fail. Um, any mutualization of anything um, will be very hard to argue if within six months we've completely failed to reform the labor market. So it's, an unfortunate, it's unfortunate that we have to take that position, but I think it's the only position to take. Um, and it's also, also, as a narrative, I think it's also something which can play in our favor in terms of reforming France to get some compromise for Europe for certain measures which are supported in France, which are, for instance, um, slightly reinforced measures of protection in certain trade areas on certain industries, um, which I think is necessary. So, not ideal, but realistically the only thing we, we, we can do and we have to do. Um, for Macron going beyond the national interest and reforming the cap. Stra uh, the cap reform has been reformed. It needs more reform. Uh, it needs more reform and the agricultural, the agricultural part of the program, which is to focus um, sort of the industrial uh, subsidies into modernizing industrial areas or industrial agricultural lands in Europe, but to put pour more money into sort of local uh, farming practices and encouraging sort of close, um, you know, close um, selling points and so forth for environmental and touristic reasons uh, is more the direction that we will push the cap in. So I think there'll be a will to negotiate the cap because there's a realization that it doesn't work very well for even for farmers, um, except for very large industrial farmers who are heavy receivers. So I think there'll be a will to change the cap, but it will be, as always, a very contentious issue with lots of different interests. Um, but that will be my answer. Except the fact that uh, Macron is from Picardy, and Picardy farmers are very powerful. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the first question, uh, the, what's weakened Europe of late has been the weakness of the French voice. And if, if there isn't some reinforcement of the French voice, that weakness will continue. We saw it over the negotiations with Greece, where there wasn't an ability to push through something that was different from what the Germans wanted. The concern is, if France doesn't manage to improve its position, it's not going to be black and white, there'll be no French influence, but the, the, the shade of grey that we'll get will be the wrong shade of grey for the future of Europe. That's, that's how I put it, rather than saying it's one or the other. On the, the reform of the common agricultural policy, according to one of my spies in the French financial ministry in Bercy, France is on, in the process of becoming a net contributor to the cap. 
And that is clearly going to change things because once the money starts going out rather than coming in, you tend to have a different perspective on it. But then you're going to be up against the Poles, the Romanians and the Irish who are still significant net beneficiaries from it. So don't expect rapid reform of the CAP only to be within the French gift. It's, there are retail players elsewhere. As for what uh, Theresa May is, is like to be, one of the anecdotes about the launch of the, of, the, of the Conservative Party manifesto was that David Davis, who's the Secretary of State for negotiating the exit from the EU, was there and he was, he was, he was handed the microphone and said, well, do you want to say something now? He said, what, what should I say? Strong and stable? Mm-hmm. So clearly there's a bit of mockery already going on inside the Conservative Party of the strong and stable mantra. Will she be wishy-washy and soft? Well, no. She, no British Prime Minister is going to go to a negotiation and say, yes, I, I roll over for everything you propose. That there will be a strong British position. And we should not neglect the fact that Britain has still quite a number of cards to play, particularly on the security dimension, which are, are going to be influential. And the fact that Britain remains quite a big market for some other EU member states, that's significant. It's huge market for the Irish. It's a big market for nearby countries like the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Spain and Germany. It's much less of an important market for a country like Slovenia. Slovenia exports, 2% of Slovene exports go to the UK, 20% go to Germany. But guess who they're going to back? Hard arithmetic works in this context. Let's have some more questions. Yes, the lady at the back. Um, I, I work for um, yeah, I, 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 oh. <laughs> uh, so I work for a consultancy with uh, uh, research academies, and so I was wondering. I haven't heard much of what Macron thought of uh, the uh, research uh, funding and the implication of the Brexit on research funds. Uh, in the UK. Okay. <coughs> when we get the chance, we'll remind him. Hi, I'm Martin. I study in, also in the European Institute. Um, I was wondering, a bit related to Bassam's question, uh, it looks like um, the Conservatives are going to win the election, although because it holds, obviously Labour is giving a Theresa May a run for her money, but we, it looks like the Conservatives are going to win the election. However, when you look at the voting transfer predictions, uh, the voting transfer from 2015 to 2017, it appears that the Conservatives are mainly gaining their votes from uh, UKIP, which has been crushing and burning in previous months. Um, my, my question would, would be two interrelated questions, really. Uh, one, how will this impact Brexit? How will all those, Brexit, all those UKIP votes transferring to the Conservatives impact what uh, Dr. Begg was talking just about before? There's a May strong and stable position uh, coming to those negotiations. And two, why were this, how, why were those elections called in the first place? Really, was it really about changing the UK's position towards Brexit, or was it something way more domestic? You, you know, the Conservatives uh, fending off the UK threat and trying to play a reverse 1997, maybe on Labour. Was it which one of them was this? I don't think there's anything we can say on the first question of, of how Macron was going to view the research budget. Is what? 
<laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite, quite direct. Because I guess you don't know. <laughs> but I don't think anybody will know because it's, yeah. it's, it's so low down the list of priorities of, of things to, to do. But on, on why Theresa May called the election, the official narrative is that she was, she was facing too much opposition within Westminster, both from the House of Lords and from different wings of the Conservative Party, plus trying to block the way she was trying to engage in Brexit. Now, there's a lot of hubris in this because it's saying, I don't like the way things are going in Westminster, so I, I demand the country elects me with a bigger mandate. Behind this, it's unavoidable that she would look at the poll that was published the previous weekend when she was on her famous walk in, in Wales with her husband and think, I can trounce the Labour Party for a generation here and, uh, and give myself more power. But there's also a more pragmatic element to it. Had the, had the British Parliament been allowed to go to 2020, as was prescribed in the Fixed Parliament Act, we would have been reaching the end of the Parliament at the point where Brexit was either going well or badly. And that would put pressure on, on the, the British negotiators to achieve a deal quickly, just so it didn't interfere with the next round of elections. So there is a case to be made that what she was doing there was trying to find room for manoeuvre, both on the timetable and against uh, the, co the, the different constellations of, of opponents that she was facing. Will it change much in the Brexit? <coughs> this, is this is where we get into the realm of speculation, because on the one hand, she can go to Brussels and say, look, this is on the assumption she wins with a bigger majority. Look, I have a new mandate from the British people. You, the EU27, can't tell me I don't have a strong backing from my people, so you must respect our, our demands. That's one scenario. The other is that she is able to play off hard Brexiteers against softer Brexiteers and have, have the Brexit she wants, and therefore more room for flexibility, which could include on things like the, the Brexit divorce bill. Can you imagine what the headline would be in the Daily Mail if the Brexit divorce bill stayed at 60 or 100 billion euros and Theresa May agreed to pay it? She'd be eviscerated. But if she's just won a big election, she's going to be in a far stronger position to make concessions. So these are the two scenarios. I don't know which one is going to prevail, but I, I've set them before you. Uh, on the research question, just to, so that I understand, you mean European funds? Yes. Funds from Europe, right? Um, I think it's, it's, um, this comes back to the first thing element. You're not going to hear Macron making comments about anything. We're going to stay behind the Commission. The Commission is going to negotiate. And you're not going to hear Macron taking positions on whether research funds or parts of Horizon 2020 or academic, and not throughout the campaign. I mean, this is going to be a negotiation where the Brits have made it very clear that they're going to put, you know, counterterrorism on the line uh, and exchange of, um, you know, sort of information which could lead to terrorist attacks in France. It's going to be a very tough negotiation. And I agree. I mean, research funding will be pretty low in the priorities, but also I wouldn't expect any comments during the negotiation or any running commentary to take back <laughs> from either parties, the Germans or the, or the French. They will stick to the Commissioner Barney's positions which will be probably very untransparent until very late uh, when it comes to research funding. So unfortunately, I don't think you're going to have an answer to your question for a while. <laughs> um, on the, um, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, the, the, the conservative victory, if there is one, and the size of it, it's the, literally the million-dollar question. It's 
does a if she comes back with a larger majority, does that enable a harder Brexit or a softer Brexit? I don't think anybody's got an answer. Um, so the transfer of votes from UKIP, I think even if that's true, the question is not really if there's a transfer of votes for UKIP, the question is with marginals uh, won and what type of candidates have been put forward in those marginals. And I'm not sure that you'll find that those candidates who could win the sort of, whatever, 50 seats, which could be well over the, uh, sort of above the 12 seat majority uh, that they have now, are massive Brexiteers because I think they've been selected specifically for being, or a lot of them have been selected specifically for being, for having a potential appeal to swing voters from the Dems or for those Remainers who are now saying, let's just get, get it done. So, um, open question, but it, uh, the way to, if you want to have a look at it from a sort of public policy side, the way is take the you know, 100 profiles of the people who are running in, the, the parliamentary candidates who are running in very marginal seats and look at their opinion on Brexit. Just, just add one further thought to that, which is that you get very peculiar dynamics in the British first-past-the-post system. <laughs> where if there are multiple candidates, somebody with, with as few as 20-odd percent can win. If you obliterate UKIP, which seems to be happening, and the Liberal Democrats are not having any kind of search, then it's back down to really two, two candidates, Labour and Conservative. And in those circumstances, it looks like the Conservatives are going to do far better out of taking the UKIP vote. We have time for a few more questions. Yes, the, uh, the lady in the middle, please. Hi, um, I'll just shank it over here. Um, a question for you, Alex, actually. So on the, uh, on the idea that member states and France would stand behind the Commission um, very strongly, I think I agree with you on aspects of the divorce bill. I don't think that would be the case when we move closer towards, whether it falls in the two-year period or not, but when you move closer towards a, a final deep and special relationship, whatever that might be, I think on divorce aspects, on these, on these primary aspects that Daniel has already laid out, member state interests are very much aligned. Further down the road, that might not be the case. So off the back of that, I was wondering what you think of the narrative that's relatively well accepted in Britain right now, that France, irrespective of this vote, France was entirely irrespective, France was always going to be one of the toughest negotiating partners on the other side of that table of the, other, uh, of the EU27 that we're facing. Um, and that, that is aside from the fact that Macron has, as you say, is looking to boost France's competitivity off the back of um, Brexit, reap the, reap the reward of Brexit, whatever that might be. Aside from the Macron candidacy itself, was France always going to be a tough negotiating partner? And if you think that is the case, do you think it is entirely to do with staving off the FN vote? Is it to do with border agreement arrangements? Is there, is there a particular reason that that narrative plays in Britain? Let's have a, another question. The gentleman just next to you, just in the row in front. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Matthew on the LSC. Um, just a question uh, more generally to both of the panel. Um, do you think a fiscally integrated Europe would actually be beneficial for France? Um, because the way I see it would be um, a sort of a small fiscal Europe would allow Germans to institute a veto over national budgets. Um, and I, I believe that would give the Germans a lot of uh, long parent. Uh, Europe and whether that would be beneficial for France, I'm not sure. Um, it's interesting to hear the that. Let's have the, the question directed to you first. Um, oh, this is attract your attention. Um, 
So on the um, sorry on the um, on the different uh, agreements. The problem is I don't know how the agreement post Brexit is going to look like. I don't understand if it's going to be a pan-European agreement or if there's going to be sort of bilateral agreements with every country. Clearly, with France, we have an enormous bilateral relation in defence, in immigration, with the sort of 2K agreements. Um, there'll be a question of the Dublin agreements if they're renegotiating, which is part of the programme, uh, or the sort of manifesto. So it's very hard to say without seeing what type of agreement we're going on the sort of second part, or phase two, um, as Banya put it, there's a phase one and a phase two. I think on a phase one, you can expect everybody to be aligned. Um, on a phase two, on I would expect a lot of alignment on a lot of aspects, actually. Um, and to that question, I think, on, particularly on subjects which are, in the grand scheme of things, not the sort of top priority of politicians, if you have divergence. On the ETS, for instance, if there was something to do with sort of um, commitments, then there would be big divergence because the difference between Poland and France is just, I mean, radically opposed and it has profound impacts on national security for Poland and on nuclearness in France. But on research funding for institutes in the UK, I, I sincerely doubt that the EU member states will, you know, alliance will fall apart because I don't think the sort of issue is politically divisive enough. So you're potentially right, but it, I, I'd say they're on a very specific, very highly politicised problem where there's a big divergence between member states. Um, on the narrative of France being a tough negotiating partner, I mean, I think there's a part of history there. I mean, this is un-Brexit un related. This is the Franco-British relation for the past three centuries. Um, so I think there's an Nine element. Give it a bit more than three centuries. I mean, this is the the, the the English press is, you know, particularly keen to look at France as always the sort of key competition. You just have to look at a rugby game or a final World Cup. To, so I think there's an element of the story sell. The story the story sells. You know, the frogs, the sort of nasty frogs across the channel, um, and uh, there's an element of truth, which is that uh, France has traditionally had a less open trade, open seas view of the world um, than Germany, for instance. And that, that, on the economic perspective, has been less close to the Brits. Although it's very it's specific to the economic part, because if you think of the defence part, actually the Brits and the French tend to be much more aligned. And you rarely see in the papers, actually, big arguments about foreign policy between the two of them. So it's, I'd say it's sort of because the visions traditionally have been very different. It, it, but the, it comes back to the paradox that we're going back before, is that Macron is probably the dream uh, president of an English prime minister, were they to be still in the, in the EU. I mean, half of our European program, or except for the federalization and so forth, all the economic part element of our economic program, is literally what the UK has been pushing for the last 20 years. So, I mean, there's a, there's a phenomenal irony that they've left, you know, a year or nine months, 12, 11 months before finally they had the French partner who would have been willing to integrate the single market, willing to integrate the digital single market, which they've been desperately pushing and getting pushed back from French civil servants. So. On the fiscal union, I think the, I mean, it's very difficult to say because in Brussels, or my experience of Brussels is that the devil's really in the details. Fiscal union depends what fiscal union you have, how the powers sharing agreement is within the sort of institutions that you create. Um, and that's, that waiting is really what creates an advantage for one or the other, which is why it's 
all the treaty negotiations that we've had are so complicated because any discussion about the mechanism, which is incredibly boring, but about you know what qualified majority is and you, which you would have to have if you were going to a really integrated fiscal union, you, you would end up having a technical negotiation which translate to how much power do you have within the decision-making process. Um, and that's where French probably think that they have amazing negotiators so they would get an upper hand uh, and the Germans would probably think that they have enormous economic might so they would think, you know, they would think that they would have an upper hand and it sort of depends on how the negotiation and the details would be put forward. But, uh, but there's a clear view, I think, in, in a lot of sort of economic political circles that we need, for the Eurozone to work, we need a bit more fiscal integration, one way or another. I think there's, there's quite a lot of consensus on that. Mm -hmm. Yes, just, just to elaborate on that, there are multiple def definitions of fiscal union which range from the classic German view, which is it's a union of rules, where everybody respects the rules and they're policed from the from the European level downwards. That's fading, as you have seen in my latest paper on this. I'm sure you've read it. Uh, and then there are variations on coming together on things like uh, sharing risk, which can be straightforward in the sense of something like uh, common deposit insurance, more elaborate in Eurobonds. There's then fiscal transfers, the creation of a transfer union, which is anathema to the Germans. If you, if you utter the words fiscal, fiscal transfer union in, in Berlin, you will be shot immediately. You can have extensions of any of these in different directions. You might have a, a stabilization capacity at European level, which isn't necessarily uh, permanent fiscal transfers, but it might entail something like a common, common unemployment fund, which has been canvassed in Brussels at the moment where you, you only take from it when you're in an asymmetric shock of some description and you put back in under normal times. All of these are variations, and, and there are more, on fiscal union. And I don't think what we have yet is a clear indication of which vision of fiscal union is going to prevail. Macron and the Germans are advocating different things. And that reconciliation will be part of the fascination of watching what Macron does at European level. Right, we are rapidly running out of time. Two more questions. Um, can I can I see a show of hands? Well, I have the mic, so I'm going to use it. <laughs> well, we, we can take uh, take I, four I think, take four if they're if they're brief. Uh, uh, quick, quick okay, questions. Uh, two questions and one solution for the Strasbourg seat compromise, which is to uh, put uh, the British agencies in Strasbourg, such as the European Banking Agency, as well as the Pharmaceutical or European Medical Agency uh, in Strasbourg, in exchange for, for the decision with Matterport, I think you should convey that to President Macron. On another note, um, Alexandre, you mentioned um, the, lack of, the po possible lack of accountability of this negotiation. What do you, if you are elected to the French National Assembly, think that the role of uh, European parliaments can be in protecting citizens' rights in these negotiations that promise to be very intergovernmental. And uh, for you, Professor, you mentioned the continental partnership of Jean-Pierre Ferry that you wrote uh, last year, but um, isn't this proposal doomed to, to fail or to even be considered uh, due to the fact that 
there's an AI side to uh, opt for what looks like a, a very tough Brexit with no inclusion of the single market, which therefore prevents uh, a double Europe, one which is more economic and one which is more political. Thank you. One last question from this gentleman. A short question, please, sir. Okay. Um, hi there. So, um, my question is basically, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Brexit and all that and all the problems behind it. What I wanted to know is, is there actually a way that maybe the EU can maybe try to convince the UK to stay inside uh, in a way that doesn't damage relationships but also benefits both sides? That's more or less the same question. <laughs> Give a nuke a chance, come on. Thank you. Uh, now, I just have one question to both of you, actually. Um, your remarks and your reasoning about the whole narrative of this campaign seems to be that Michael has won and now he needs to pass his reforms in order to tackle populism uh, and to beat everything that I'm in the But it seems to me that, in particular, the Labour reform is going to hit precisely those constituencies which are now voting for my So I don't see the logical link between uh, success in the reforms of Macron and uh, the change of uh, the vote for populist parties uh, from liberal uh, open politics and, and tackling populism. So I think we'll, we'll, take, we'll take those questions and that's it. Thank you. Well, I'll start with Anouk's question, because uh, let me give you one pretty simple statistic. In 2007, the unemployment rate in France was about 8%, and the unemployment rate in Germany was about 8%. Today, the unemployment rate in France is nearly 10%, and the unemployment rate in Germany is barely 4%. That's not a long period over which that evolution has taken place. And the, the challenge of the Macron programme is, can you do it fast enough to obviate what you're saying, which is that you get a backlash from those who are being targeted? France is very much an insider model. The outsiders in France don't win from it. And yet it's some of the outsiders who are, as you say, backing the pen. If, if the Macron programme is able to demonstrate that it is generating the benefits for those who have been the decamisados, the, those without shirts in the, in, the, in the French system, then you're going to find a reversion of support, as you've seen in Germany. Now, on the other question about... Um, I'll, I'll leave one for you. <laughs> on, on the other question of, of whether there is a myth about the way in which uh, a new British position would, would emerge in Jean-Pierre Ferry model, I think there are many layers potentially to this. You could have one in which uh, a variation on a free trade arrangement mimics much of what Jean has been talking about in his programme and says you, you can have an after light solution for Britain. In fact, if you read the, the uh, Lancaster House speech by Theresa May, she says we want out, we're going to be out of the single market, but we want to be also out the the customs union while still having a common commercial policy, and that's logically inconsistent. So I think there's still, still some working out to do on the British side of what they want from this. Um, on the European Parliament oversight, which was uh, the sort of second question, 
Um, so the way I've, uh, over the, I mean, the way I've experienced Brussels over the last 20 years is there's been a, an enormous growth of sort of unofficial agreements between the Parliament and the Commission. Um, and under Article 50, there's obviously the power has consent uh, over the agreement, which means it can reject the agreement as a whole. Um, and what will happen is there'll be cont continuous discussions between the Parliament and the Commission. Not saying that the Commission will say everything, but the Commission will absolutely make sure that the Parliament re that it reaches an agreement with the different parties and that they're fine to pass the deal. It will never take the risk to run a, to sort of propose a deal without having considered the two main parties in Parliament. So this argument about lack of transparency, parliamentarians like to make a, a enormous, there's, a, there's an amount of truth to it because a negotiation is always an element of lack of transparency. We have the same, the same arguments is, is here in the UK, uh, but there's also an amount of hypocrisy in that there's constantly exchange. Brussels works a lot by unofficial sort of channels. Uh, if you think of, of how directives are now negotiated through, um, through trilogues, it's essentially like sort of constant negotiations. So I think there'll be constant sort of discussions and there'll be constant calls for more transparency and there'll be constant pushback for the Commission to say that we can't sort of be more transparent. But I said that the Commission, that under the sort of meaning that I see in Article 50, the Parliament will have the power that was um, uh, it was supposed to have uh, in the agreement. And um, naturally the Parliament is, has an amazing talent at giving itself more power. So it will try to. Um, on the, can the EU stay inside the UK? No, the other way around. The UK inside the EU. Yeah, they, so yeah, the UK inside the EU. Um, listen, I mean, I, um, I, I, I mean, I would love for that to happen. I'm going to be quite blunt. I don't think that's going to happen. And the, now the, the sort of overwhelming sense is that even the people who voted to remain want to just leave, just for the sake of it. Um, I don't think the EU can do anything to change the UK government's mind. You would need, you would need some kind of event to change a, a general, massive stroke of consciousness in the English population. And uh, I mean, I, I just don't see it happening. I, I just don't see how it could happen, particularly now with the election coming up. Right could, now, could, could I one sentence on that, yeah. which is: the, the UK is characterised as being outside the euro, outside the Schengen zone. In fact, the divergence has been increasing, not being part of the banking union, not being willing to participate in the sharing of uh, uh, asylum seekers. So I could see that divergence happening in any case before the referendum. And at some point, it would have had to be confronted. Can I just, because I think that was a French policy. That, that was the way I see Yeah, Yeah, the, the, the way I see your question is that it's a very, it's very much a question about the program of Macron and whether the labor market reform would work. Um, <coughs> France has a tremendously protective uh, sort of contract for the moment, um, which for me is completely hypocritical in that 15% of people of contracts only are built within that contract. So we say we're super protective, but actually we protect only a very small part of the labor force. And that very small part is generally those who really don't need the protection. So those who are in sort of solid states of employment with uh, sort of um, the ability to find jobs relatively quickly and easily. So, I mean, our view is that that is, if not one of the main problem of the French economy. If you talk to entrepreneurs in France, they will all tell you, I cannot employ because if my circumstances change three months down the line, I will be incapable of fitting the bill to get rid of someone. 
So will the immediate first part impact as of any liberalization be negative? Yes, although it's compensated by a whole host of social measures, which include higher, higher you know, unemployment benefits for poorer categories, which includes investment in those areas that you're talking about, 15 billion in the renewable industry, for instance, which will be specifically targeted at those areas with the, those basically northern French areas, which where the Front National has vested over the years. Um, the idea is that we need to start right now so that within four, three, four years, the unemployment curve will come down, investment will come back to, to France, employment will naturally sort of pick up as confidence in business increases and so forth. Um, Wonderful. It's a big bet. <laughs> I think you'll all join me in thanking Alexandra Holroyd and Professor Ian Begg for being here today. Thank you.